Come on in, everyone. Come on in. Feel free to grab your coffee. Oh, nice. Thank you, Martin. If you, would, if you would like to, you can grab them now, or you can grab them later. There's little bookmarks I made for you on the music stand in the center. So feel free to take one as you go, but it's not a handout per se. You're not going to need to read from it. So you don't have to grab one until you leave. But please do, okay? Give you a minute to all get situated here. Today we are going to be talking about St. Teresa of Avila. She was a reformer, she was a mystic, and she was a friend to God. She was a remarkable woman, so it's going to be a good day. This is a likeness of her that was painted by Peter Paul Rubens. It's not the most accurate, but it is a good portrait. So I have that up there as our introduction. Um, we are going to all pray this together. And so we start, and I have the first portion of the Great Litany that we would all say together. And then I have a prayer that she wrote, which is underneath. And I thought that would be a good way to kind of um, bring us in and to draw us together. Okay? So let's pray together. For Julian of Norwich, Bridget of Sweden, and Teresa of Avila, and for all who renew our vision of the mystery of God, Thanks be to God. Uniting in loving, our God is calling. Trusting him, let us follow. Amen. So for reference, if you see things in quotes on the screen, generally today, that's going to be from Teresa herself. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to kind of get um, a big picture of what her life was like, of what her work was like, and then I've tried to give you very, very small amounts from a very prolific woman um, of her life or her thoughts in her own words. Okay, so if you see quotes, generally I'm quoting her. Okay, so let's go forward. All right, so Teresa of Avila. She was born in Avila, Spain in 1515. She was not known as Teresa of Avila then. Her name was very long, so just buckle up. It was Teresa Ali Fatim Correa Sanchez de Capeda y Ahumada. Yes. She was born into a wealthy family, hence all the names. That lineage was important, okay? So she was born in 1515 in this town in Spain. And if you look right here, it's basically smack dab in the heart of Spain. Okay, so that's just a picture. Sometimes it's helpful for me to kind of imagine where these people were and what timeline it was, because um, they really did live. <laughs> so she was in the heart of Spain, and this picture actually up here, this is a villa as it stands today. So um, what's really pronounced, obviously, is the town walls, okay? It was, um, it was a big deal. So those town walls were there in her time, and they're still standing today, okay? So a really protected and safe city. Um, this town, Avila, was once described as, or, by Orson Welles as the town in 16th century Spain. So the architecture that you see, if you were looking for that kind of quintessential look, you would go to Avila. So she was born kind of right smack dab in the middle of um, the heart of Spain in this really prominent city to a wealthy family of merchants. Um, they were wolf, wool merchants, so wool, and then her dad actually um, throughout his life became a knight. So there was, there was some political prestige that she had. 
Unlike many saints, she did not grow up poor. She did not. She was wealthy, had a lot of things going for her. Um, she was part of a blended family. Her dad uh, and, her, and his first wife had three kids together. The mom died. He remarried to Carmela, and that's where this blended family comes in. So she was one of nine siblings, but she was always a very interesting and engaging child. She was bright. She was sharp. She was, um, she was a go-getter, even, even from a young age. The story goes that at age seven, Teresa thought that there would be nothing as glamorous as being proclaimed a martyr for the faith, because that's really what you wanted to be, up and coming, right? So she convinced her older brother, Rodrigo, and herself to escape Avila Walls and head to Africa to beg to become a martyr from the Moors. Thankfully, her uncle caught her right outside the city gates, right outside the walls, and dragged her back in and told her that was not how this was going. <laughs> and uh, she continued to live her life. Um, she was in a devout Catholic family. Okay, So I will say that um, she is a reformer, and that's one thing that we're going to see and we're going to learn about her. But she was born in the time of the Reformation. You know, Luther, that whole time, this is her era. She is alive during that point. So while Luther stepped out and did that kind of work, she stayed within the Catholic Church and did her reforms. Okay, so just mental timeline. A lot going on. Um, at age 11, her parents died from some sort of illness. Um, she was heartbroken. She was really, really devastated about that. It made a profound impact on her life. Thankfully, she had an uncle living in the city, so she did not have to move. But he did send her to go and learn with the Augustinian uh, nuns in the city. She would bounce back and forth between this convent with the Augustinian mun, uh, muns, I keep saying that, Augustinian nuns, and um, her home in Avila because she would have several bouts of illness throughout her life, profound illness. So she would bounce there and home and back again. Okay? Um, I just wanted to, we're talking about a saint, but it's really important to understand that saints are people too. And um, Teresa had this, and she was a real person. Uh, she had very serious illnesses, chronic illnesses that she dealt with throughout her lifetime. Um, there's some debate as to what they really were, but they include headaches, digestive issues, some people claim even strokes. Hard to say what exactly it was. Um, but prominent and, and really, they were a big part of her life. She also, um, from a young age, this is... She was a girl, and she was very much focused on romantic fiction, which her dad hated. She was obsessed with knights and courtly life. She knew the political gossip of the day, and she used that to her influence. And she, at a young age, was very interested in style and beauty. So she's living this life. She's being educated by these nuns, but she is still, from a wealthy family, a girl looking forward to her prospects. With all that going on, God was calling Teresa, however, to something else. Okay, so these two things kind of converge. Um, she realizes that God continues to call her, so it's not going to be married life, and she's not going to be living the courtly life, but she's called to be a, a nun. So she becomes a Carmelite sister in Avila, Spain, in 1535. And it turns out, actually, that the, nun the monastery wasn't all that different from what her life was like. Um, you see, if you weren't going to be married back in the day and you were a single woman, where would you go and what would you do? Convent life. 
okay? So she was there living the good life. They had good meals. They entertained dignitaries. Yes, they wore veils, but it was important about how you would wear them and how it would show off what your new outfit was or your jewelry. If you were really bright and engaging, you might have people who wanted to come and get your advice, and so you would invite them in. Notice that at this point in time, being a Carmelite sister has strayed from what it has been before, this cloistered life of seclusion, of poverty, and of service. So Teresa has switched from courtly life, yes, but she's gone over to the other side and found it to be pretty similar. Now, um, Teresa gets really, really sick, and you know, I've told you about her chronic illness. She keeps getting sick, and during one of these uh, bouts of illness, she um, became really, really weak. She was not doing well. She was reading a book called The Third Spiritual Alphabet by Francisco de Osuna, and um, he was a mystic that focused on understanding God and understanding the world better through self-meditation and understanding who you were, and by coupling that with a set of practices like not eating or only subsiding on water or you know going very very minimal pull back everything so that you really kind of understand what's going around you um, so she had this kind of through her illness she became to really become convicted that oh this life isn't what it was set out to be if you read what the Carmelite sisters were supposed to be doing, this doesn't look like it anymore. This looks more like my former life, and this became to be a problem for her, where it hadn't before. So from this point on, this illness, she started to take her faith very, very seriously, and she shed her concern for all these worldly things. So instead of, you know, she still wore the veil, only this time she didn't care about how it was arranged. She didn't wear the jewelry with it. If people asked her advice, she may give it to them, but she would not have an audience where they would come into her room to be received and they would gain from her wisdom. She started taking this really seriously. So there was, she also at this time, and this is kind of sad for me because I love to read, she cut out reading fiction. She just trimmed that out because she decided that was not good for her. So she cut that all out and she stopped following politics in that sort of sense, okay? So this is where she has switched her life. So maybe that's not fun for me to hear because I don't want to hear it right now. Um, <laughs> who knows? Check back in with me in a couple months. We'll see. Um, but this was Teresa's kind of shift in her, in her life. So she doubles down on humility and um, focus was really on self-knowledge as revealed in prayer. All right, so I told you that she was a reformer. I told you that she was a mystic. I also told you that she was a friend of God. This um, is arguably the best known fact about Teresa's life. She had ecstatic visions. And what are ecstatic visions? Anyone? What, go ahead, say it out. No, okay. Ecstatic visions, anyone? Yeah, Monica. Uh, during waking time, you, you see manifestations. Yeah, so some people might call them hallucinations, okay? If you see them, that could be a sign of mental unwellness. However, we also think there is part of that which, if it's given from God, that's not an illness so much as that's a way that he is reaching out to you and that is a, an experience beyond the norm of day-to-day -day stuff. So she started seeing some visions and um, visions and that would include auditory stuff, that would include visual stuff, that would include sensation, feeling, okay? So 
This picture um, is of the ecstasy of St. Teresa, which is inside the Basilica of Santa Maria in Rome. And um, this is done by Bernini. So arguably this is one of the most well-known pictures that she has. But she had multiple ecstatic visions. This one that's pictured is where she believed that um, she, it was during a period of seclusion and prayer that she received this vision of an angel or a seraph, who is this person here. Um, so one of those creatures with six wings on fire, screaming holy, holy, holy in Isaiah. Bernini took some license here. All right, a little bit more human-like, a little bit more pretty, basically. Um, taking a lance and piercing her through the heart repeatedly. It didn't kill her, however, although it caused her tremendous pain. And when it finally stopped, she ended up feeling on fire for God. Okay? So that's a vision that she had. Um, she also... Because she would have these visions regularly, she truly thought that ecstatic visions could, perhaps should, be a part of everyone's regular prayer life. She didn't think she was special. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. So she also had, um, let's see what else I put down here. She had a two-year-long vision of Jesus Christ. So for two years... Two years, people. This is not just an afternoon. Two years, she felt, and she describes and writes about the fact that she saw Jesus Christ next to her for two years, and he would talk to her, and he would teach her what she needed to do. But no one else could see him. No one else could hear him. Wow. That is not the type of prayer life that I usually have. I don't know about you, right? Um, but that doesn't feel normal to me. Yet for her, she really thought that it was. And that, in fact, it could be for all of us. So she writes, um, a lot of her writings, they happen because her superiors think that um, what Teresa is experiencing is tremendous. It's incredible. It's something they can, um, they can see is from God. And they want other people to be able to follow. So Teresa writes her works Basically, a lot of it involving a life of prayer so that we can understand how to become a friend of God. And part of that for her is having these ecstatic visions and being able to receive from God in a way that we would not normally recognize. Um, she also has this vision, and I, we will talk about this more in a bit, where she envisions the soul as being a castle in and of itself. And she uses that um, vision and that metaphor to kind of play around with how we get to know God. So, she's got a lot going on in her life. Um, any questions so far? <laughs> yeah. Do you know how, about how old she was when she like, started taking her faith seriously? Around age 20. Around age 20, she started taking it seriously. So she was at the convent for about two years and then got super sick. And that's when it started to go down. So she lived for about two years doing her thing, you know, being okay with the status quo, so to speak, being comfortable. Um, and then she got super ill. And it happened to be with that timeline, super ill, reading that book, feeling that kind of nudge that it all changed. So she relatively, she was always a faithful Catholic, but she would, she would describe it as she took a, like a turn for serious piety at that point. So she was young, but sick. So it wasn't an easy life. Yeah, Monica. Um, what made her become a saint in the 
Right. Right. Um, well, I don't know if I can answer them for the entirety of the Catholic Church. I can give you my, my stab at it, though. Um, I would say that the difference is, is that she, her visions were enough that people could see the evidence of them. Now, you could make that argument with Joan of Arc, perhaps, but people could see the evidence of these visions. She was regularly meeting with confessors or spiritual guides throughout her life. She had about three or four of them, each from a different Catholic background, a Franciscan, a Jesuit, an Augustinian. It goes on. But each of these priests would hear what she was saying. She would go through this process of talking to them about what was going on in her life, going, what do you do with that? And um, they would kind of pray with her and work through it. So she, um, I would say that was one thing she had going for her that Joan didn't. And from what I know that much about Joan's life is that she was kind of the only authority. I know this is what God has for me and no one else could see it or touch it. With Teresa, you could see it, you could touch it. She would write it down and it was this interesting thing. So um, there's a lot of writing, a lot of dialogue. Um, of her works, they made her write things down, which she was not happy about, but she did it anyways. So we have her detailed descriptions, and we actually get some of the letters um, from those people that she was confessing to, her confessors or her spiritual guides, talking about what they were seeing and why they thought what they thought. So there's a little more evidence there, um, although I'm certainly not trying to hate on Joan. I'm not, I, don't, I don't know enough to say. And but I think that's what it was, is that she was meeting with someone regularly enough when all of this started to happen that she herself was like, yeah, this isn't normal. This has not been happening to me always. Is, what do I do with this? Um, so that kind of helps mark it down. Yeah? Did she have any like, noticeable like, interaction with like, the Reformation because of you know, her time period? Yeah, not outside, not with Luther and that kind of camp. She had it within the Catholic Church, though, and we'll talk about that. She kind of brought reform to the Carmelites. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and she had both. This becomes a more sensationalized one because, as, because it's such a provocative image. This idea of being stabbed through, how can this be a good thing? Um, so people don't understand it most, so I think it gets highlighted in her life. But she would tell you that walking through her own soul like a castle was an ecstatic experience. She would tell you that um, seeing Jesus walking and talking with her on the regular, that was an ecstatic experience. But that doesn't make as good of a portrait, right? <laughs> that doesn't make as provocative an image. Yeah, Matt. And she just says this vision is of indescribable sweetness. Yeah. The same vision where she's using violence and sweetness to try to get at Yes, she describes this, and her quote was um, that she was left with it being all on fire with the great love of God. So much so that from this point on in her life, her unofficial motto to herself became, Lord, either let me suffer or let me die. So she has this idea that somehow this suffering was actually such a sweet gift that she can't separate the two. And I think it's precisely because of that confusion that we all have going, how is pain a good thing? 
I don't like pain, right? Um, that we have confusion with it. But this was the this was one of the big points in her life where she puts those two together in a weird way. Yes. I've been reading a little bit of history, and I've gotten the impression with the medievals that there's this strong connection between suffering and violence and religion and religious experience. Right. And I feel like that has a lot to do with the graphic depictions of the crucifixion and um, the graphic depictions of sinners tortured in hell. And it seems like all of those kind of come together so you have like the uplifting of the stigmatics who are experiencing this really gory thing that it seems to be really glorious. And then similarly with like the, the degree of tolerance they had for just torturing people. <laughs> right. Um, just, you know, on a regular basis. Um, I don't know, it seems like all those things kind of come together. Um, and maybe that explains a little bit why, why this violence seems like why it's easy for a medieval to stomach where, where it wouldn't really fit our aesthetics in the same way. Yeah, I hear that point. Martin, do you want to tag in? I mean, just to make the point that this is violence suffered, we're talking about in the saints, never violence inflicted on anybody else. Correct. Correct. Yeah. This isn't the glamorous. Think about the contrast here we have where Teresa wants to run out and become a martyr. And her uncle says, no, that's not it, right? Versus God coming to her and her suffering on her own, not of her choice, but of learning through that experience. There's a great big difference there, okay? Yeah, Jason. Uh, so this reminds us striking relative to Julian of Norwich last week. Yes. Afraid to be sick all the time. So right. not to take us in a... Weird place. Yeah. yeah. Was, it more, was it more characteristic of the women saints, or was it of the era? Right. Um, I don't know if they were praying and asking for sickness. Maybe some of them do. Um, we'll touch on this in a bit, but she is dear friends with St. John of the Cross, who writes on the dark night of the soul. Okay, They're kind of tag team buddies. So certainly I would say that for their saints living at that time, it wasn't just women who felt suffering and had these kinds of things. The men suffered too. So I don't know if they pursued that. I don't, you know, but I think it was probably part of the time. Yeah. We have the, the flashlights, right? The male, the monks who themselves. Yeah. Well, and that was part of. So that sort of self-mortification was supposed to be part of a holy life. And the idea was is that they had a firmer grip on what sin was and how serious it was. So they felt the only way to work through that was to punish the body. So they were much more comfortable with those sort of practices, although, yeah, Martin. I just to jump in again, I, I look at Francis maybe as an example. It's not what you do to yourself, it's, what you, it's all about what you suffer. Correct. So if you bring the suffering on yourself or anybody else, it doesn't count. It's not the cross you go looking for, it's right. the cross that comes looking for you. Precisely. Stigmata are entirely involuntary. Precisely. And, and I think that's the point that we need to, to make here, is that this is um, something that she experiences, this is something she learns from. She did not pray for this. She doesn't pray for her illnesses. You don't get Teresa saying, yes, please, another round of that debilitating one. That's not her. She goes through it, but she doesn't ask for it, okay? Bethany, and then, um, I don't know your name, but we'll tag into you next, and then we'll move on.
Right. And it's about turning it over. It's the accepting God's will for your life with humility. That's really what's at the heart of all of this suffering for a saint, right? I'm not seeking it out. Whatever happens, happens. Whatever God brings to me, that is my life. I will accept this and I will go through it because this is the Lord's will. My one, yes, hi. What's your name, just so I know? Christopher. Christopher, okay, yeah. Yeah. I would say that what she would give, and the, the gentle pushback I would give to that is she pursued that sort of everyday suffering about setting aside her rights, her prestige. She set aside her wealth, she set aside her status, she sets aside riches and a life of ease. Um, and that's the part of the suffering that she would engage in, a life of humble service. So it's not like she wouldn't out to, she wasn't looking for people to physically abuse her. She wasn't looking to receive anything special. She didn't ask for things that were special. She wasn't looking for special suffering to make that a case. I would say that this was probably some example of special suffering that God kind of bestowed upon her, but her life was one of regular practiced suffering alongside with Christ through general practices and devotions. Does that make sense? So that was certainly part of her framework, but not at the hands of, you know, trying to make something happen. You don't try to make difficult things happen just because for her. All right, I'm gonna take a step of us further because it gets, it gets wild, all right? So here we go. The four stages of the ascent of the soul. So again, remember how I was telling you that Teresa really felt like this could be something that everyone experienced, regular part of prayer? Well, her writings talk about that. And she breaks down mysticism and having and receiving these ecstatic visions as a way to how to pursue this. So this kind of works like a learner's guide to pursuing this sort of prayer. Um, she understands that you can pursue this and God may not grant this, but for her, this is how she breaks down those steps, okay? Devotion of the heart. This involves the first step, which is mental prayer and contemplation. You pull back from the world, you begin to kind of look inward, you draw inward into yourself. And while you're doing that, your job here is to work on tuning out the world and to focus on the passion of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's your first step. First step. Your second step, the devotion of peace. Your personal will is surrendered to God. This means that your soul is being quieted, but the body is still allowed to work. So you're past the tuning out phase, you've done that, and now you get to do things like maybe you get to pray as you will, or write what comes to your mind, or just kind of receive, all right? That's your step two. Step three, devotion of union. This is being completely absorbed in God. The individual now has entered into a supernatural state by her classification, but the memory and your imagination can wander. So you've stopped doing the active stuff where you have to engage more, 
and you're just kind of there and you're ready to receive kind of letting things thoughts come upon you releasing them back out easily and gently and then the last stage the devotion of ecstasy is a state of being totally separated from the world and being completely overtaken by god body and soul you are not in control at this point you you don't opt out at this point at stage four okay so she describes this state in detail this is what it was usually like for her. It begins with a sweet or happy pain or a fearful glow in which you are aware that you are incapable of doing anything else but being in the presence of God. You are aware while somehow remaining unconscious to the world. These feelings build until you feel like you are being strangled, perhaps, by joy or intensity, and you feel like you might be completely free in flight. She describes these feelings, that intensity lasting for about 30 minutes of time. That's about a 30 minute period. Then you come back to yourself with a great weakness and feeling a little woozy, a little out of it, and with a lot of tears. And this can last for a couple hours. Now, say what you will about all of this, and I have not reached these levels of devotion, all right? At best, I would say I have maybe gotten to about stage two, if we're being honest with our spiritual lives, all right? But this must have been a pretty effective path, at least for Teresa, because we get, um, we get examples, we get writings, we get accounts of people who are with her living this cloistered life who would see her engaging in this sort of prayer during mass and levitating. Not once, not twice, but multiple times where, oh, there goes Teresa again, she's just levitating in prayer. Okay, um, and I don't wanna downplay that, but that's how regular this was for her life. This was just what happened if you were really in tune with God. And sometimes in that, you get an extra picture. You get that extra vision of ecstasy where it goes specific. And sometimes you don't. Okay? Now, just, this is wild. This is wild that she's writing about this with this amount of detail. This amount of detail is how you can achieve this, how you can follow her in this path of prayer. That is unheard of. This has not been done before. That's why Teresa gets canonized, because this path is only her own, and no one has been able so far to have the awareness, the intuition, the spiritual devotion, and the ability to teach it the way that she could. And that's why she gets canonized, for at least in part. Yeah, Monica. It's surprising to me how new age Right? Right. Well, I would say that if you were to look at mysticism either in the East or West, um, what you will find is there is there are some points where it does connect. The biggest thing is for Teresa, unlike Eastern mysticism, where you're emptying yourself up to nothing and nothing, and you just accept the nothing. Woo, you accept the nothingness that is the world. For Teresa, when you are emptying yourself of all that and you're opening yourself up, it's to a person who then fills you. So it's not just accepting whatever comes. It's in deeper devotion to a person. And I would think that that's the distinction. Although certainly the features look similar. Thomas Merton is famous for trying to find these connecting points between those two things. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I think there's also some similarities with like certain strands of really charismatic uh, Protestantism. Sure. Although, yeah, I think maybe, with, which is something that I don't know, I'm always like really uncomfortable with those kind of traditions. Sure. 
is that unlike some of those traditions, it's an intensely private kind of connection. Correct. Yes. This is a one-on-one -on -one thing. So in all of her ecstatic visions, it's, for all that she was able to do, for all she was able to teach, no one, she's not leading prayer among her sisters in the cloister and they all receive this vision. Mm -mm. It's, it's a very one-on-one, -on -one, private sort of thing that transforms her. And she writes about it and it becomes a big deal, but it starts with that private relationship. Right, right, exactly right. Yeah, Matt. It's really good. The compliment of St. John of Christ, he'll say, if these come to you, avoid them. Yeah. <laughs> he'll say because he literally uses solapi. He says, faith alone Correct. is the way that you go to God. It's yeah. beating the ascended Mount Carmel. It's almost like you need that to go to, as a chaser to go along with God. Well, and, it's, and this, is why, this is why this is important because. Keep in mind that these are the two halves of what's happening with the Carmelite orders, okay, people? So you hold these in tension. Now, I'm only teaching from Teresa's perspective today, but keep in mind that they would have had both teachings happening simultaneously. That push-pull would be going on at once, to Matt's point, okay? Jason and then Mary. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about why Teresa, right in step one, uh, sort of says not to focus on Christ, but focus on passion? Why? The passion of Christ. Right. So why not... Why not Christ's ministry or Christ's birth or, you know, Christ's In general? Like, it, had, it was specifically Christ's suffering, right? Yeah. She, I would, that's the key to this, the first step of this thing. Right. I think for Teresa, Christ's passion is the ultimate um, point of his love for us. Like, there is no greater moment defined for us than his love at the cross. Martin? Just, again, the key is specific. Mm -hmm. So it's the difference between lying naked on the ground and freezing in the cold, taking your clothes off, then jumping into the cold ocean up to your neck and standing all night. The one is active, the other is simply being allowing yourself to be done to. I mean, I agree that we there's an openness to suffering there, yeah. but it's an openness to being done to, not these strange air shirts or, or metal contraptions you use to draw your own blood, which is utterly grotesque. I would say for Teresa, she, she fully understood the idea of not being in control of her own life. As much as she may have pursued that at one point, she recognizes who is Lord. And so this sense of being out of control, but knowing who is in control is a really beautiful thing. So when we see moments of God being really active, that's the height of his love for us. I'm spinning out of control, someone comes in and saves me safe. I know I'm loved. And that's how she describes that kind of work of the passion. That, so for her, I think that's what it comes to. Not necessarily because of the gore or the, or the extremeness of that, but because there is nothing else that could be more loving than for someone to come in and save you when you cannot do that for yourself. Mary, did you have something you want to add? Right. She was pursuing Christ. Correct. And she would even write, don't ever like analyze your prayer. Right. Don't analyze your prayer. Right. Just pray. Right. Don't say, oh, I haven't had this experience, I haven't had that experience. For her, it was just a deepening her relationship with Christ. I think one of the reasons why we focus on the passion is because that's the he
mean, that's his heart. Right. His self-sacrifice and love and being willing to endure pain. So, and then if I could just say one other really short story. Of course. Uh, I sat in on this um, lecture a couple of years ago. They were talking about neuroscience and prayer. And there's a, a center at Fuller Seminary that studies centered prayer. And they um, did brain scans. I still get loose comes when I hear about this. They did brain scans of like Tibetan monks, Buddhist monks, that were very, very experienced in uh, meditation. Mm -hmm. okay? And then they did brain scans of people who did doing seven prayer for like say 10 years, okay? And on the scans, what they showed was that the parts of the brain um, that have to do with, like it's almost like the monks were asleep. Mm -hmm. They were like in a passive state, like, the Tibetan monks, yes. passive, whereas the ones, the center of prayer, all the lights that went up on the right skin had to do with communication. Ah, oh, I love that, Mary. Okay, we'll talk about that at some point over coffee, because I'm excited just to hear about that in more detail. So like what you said, this is not like emptying yourself. Correct, correct. And it's not about numbing the world so that you don't feel things. It's though that you have the heart of Christ. That's the focus. And that's a really big distinction between Eastern mysticism and Christian kind of mystic stuff. All right? Man, that's going to preach for a while. All right, I got to I gotta keep going here. I got to keep going. Okay, so remember how I told you that she was into reform work for the Carmelites, right? St. John of the Cross and her. So she's... She's having these visions, she's praying, she's living in a secluded life, she's becoming more uncomfortable with how things are running in her order, okay? Not just her convent, her order, about how things became complacent. So she starts talking to her confessor, her spiritual guide, about how we gotta get back to basics. This isn't okay. This isn't what we were supposed to be like. And so he goes, yeah, that's a great idea. I think you should do that. And Teresa, being the go-getter that she is, says, got you, we got it. So she sets out to reform the Carmelite order. And what do those reforms look like? Um, it looks like a return to the stricter rules of what the Carmelite orders were beforehand. So that includes regular prayer and worship, seclusion, you're not entertaining people, poverty, a poorness and a humility serving. She also decided to go um, have her order go barefoot. That's why they're called the Discalced. Carmelites after this um, because she felt that going barefoot would help keep you humble Okay, so um, This is what she's doing her reform So she got permission to start her first convent a reformed convent in Avila. She calls it San Jose after st. Joseph's um, so she starts and that's the first process and it causes waves people do not like it They do not like it and why don't they like it? Let's just take a wild guess no shoes. No jewelry. No jewelry. Suddenly things become less comfortable. Right. She has a problem with you kind of doing things the way that the world does, and all of a sudden my prestige is gone. Yeah. I mean, you're you're still eating. She believed now she believed in eating well, so she knew how to feast, and that I will say for Teresa. Someone once gave her a kind of pushback saying, hey, she's about to dig into a good meal, and said like, hey, shouldn't you be fasting? And she goes, 
there's a time to fast and there's a time to feast and she dug right back into that meal <laughs> I love her for that she knew she knew so she didn't hate the good things of this world she just decided that that was not going to be the focus anymore if you were in orders okay um, so she partners with Saint John of the Cross and Anthony of Jesus, two saints who are alive with her, and so she's running these convents, they're working on the monasteries. Convents generally have this cloistered inward focus of prayer. Monasteries at the time for the Carmelite order had this outward focus where they had and ran more of the business realm. But they kind of had men's men and outward focus, monasteries, women and inward focus, cloisters, and they worked together. So they were doing all of this in tandem. So if you had the time, and it's on my to-read list, there is a book that talks about specifically the relationship of St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and what their relationship was like, okay? So she wouldn't argue that these were all deeply her friends. The only person she counted as her friend was Jesus in this world. But it is striking to me that all the people she partners with for work are all men, and she had nothing but the utmost of respect for them, okay? There's about five of them that if you look into her life, they were people that she admired, that had um, lives of faith and were faithfully serving, and she tried to emulate them. So, you know, touching back on what Mark was teaching on with Aylred, she clearly had this kind of serving together friendship thing going with these really prominent male saints of the time. So she didn't think that women and men had no interaction together. That's not a thing. Just to double down on that, guys, that's not a thing. Okay? So over the time, 20-year period of time, she founds 17 different convents and the monastery that goes along with it, 17 in 20 years in Spain. And there's no public transportation, there's no cars. She's walking on foot or by mule, okay? No shoes, okay? She was a go-getter, all right? And so she's spreading this news. So the Descalced Carmelites are making a big push and people are seeing the fruits of those lives. Suddenly, it becomes where those things like, yeah, the Carmelites, they're convents wealthy and that's nice, but, you know, Teresa has some actual wisdom here. If they had a problem, suddenly they were coming to Teresa, or, hey, St. John of the Cross, now just Father John, can you tell me about what it's like to pray and how do I serve? So suddenly, it becomes this power dynamic between the Carmelite orders that existed and the Discalced Carmelites. And you can imagine, when you have those things happening, people are not going to be happy. There's going to be a political struggle. And that's what happens. So, she also, just as a fun thing before I move on, she um, went about finding followers in a really different way. She looked for intelligence, good humor, and common sense, rather than piety, with looking for people who wanted to serve in holy orders. And she's just, she's funny, guys. She's really funny if you read her. She said, heaven preserve me from sullen saints. <laughs> if you didn't have a good sense of humor, you could not roll with Teresa. Okay? So humility and boldness go hand in hand for her. And, and that is very much how she lives. Now, this doesn't go unnoticed. And no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> It's a brief joke. You have to have some lightheartedness. Teresa would appreciate the humor, friends. It's Monty Python. Anyways, she gets slapped with some accusations that go straight to the Spanish Inquisition. Now, the Spanish Inquisition is set up initially by Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain to make sure that good Catholics remain Catholic and they don't rock the boat in the church or in the state. So these complaints that the former Carmelites that she was a 
previously a part of, they have against her, they get kicked all the way up to the Inquisition because she's kicking up dust. She's making them look bad. She's taking away the prestige. They don't like it. So some of these accusations are pretty, pretty hardcore. Um, they're saying that she was being accused of all kinds of things from demonic visions to heretical beliefs to just generally being a disturber of the peace, maybe even someone who broke holy vows. Okay, so they're saying that she's running around doing something that is not good for the Catholic Church, and so the Inquisition steps in, of course. Okay, um, she was seen as a restless, disobedient gadabout who had gone about teaching as though she were a professor. How dare she? Um, so she has these really sharp criticisms come up. So she has this choice <laughs> ahead of her um, about do I comply with the Inquisition or do I not? She complies. She chose to go into voluntary retirement, a.k.a. house arrest, in a convent in Toledo, while the Inquisition went about its business running through her team, trying her team, imprisoning those. So Teresa gets this relatively insulated position because she was kind of the ringleader, so until they figured out what to do with her, she's kind of relatively safe, but under house arrest. But St. John of the Cross, for example, not so much. He gets imprisoned, and that's where we get these Dark Night of the Soul writings, okay? So a lot of suffering is happening among her people, and yet they remain faithful to this changed life here, okay? Um, now, if you were, if you're like me, that might have been enough to say, you know what, maybe I just need to pull back a little bit. Maybe I just need to cool it, enjoy some time in Toledo, go a little easy, let's see what the Inquisition finds. Clearly, God will be on my side. Not Teresa, no. No, 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 no. Teresa did not sulk. She did not hide. She remained in Toledo. She didn't make any um, new convents. She didn't create them. But what she did do was she wrote to every single one of them to make sure that they were remaining faithful. And while she was at it, she decided, eh, I might as well write the Pope and the King and make sure they know what's going on too. She was a wealthy woman from a wealthy background of privilege. She was smart. She was engaged. She was fully committed to her cause. And she was not afraid. So she starts writing. Okay, um, she worked on her own defense, so to speak. And finally, it works. In 1579, um, she gets a release from, um, yeah, 1579, she gets a release. So King Philip II finally says, okay, okay, release her from the house, enough. We know she's not actually going to cause political unrest, all right? So he writes an official release. So Teresa's free at that point. Then Pope Gregory VIII grants special dispensation for Teresa to continue her work. He says, I know, I know, it's uncomfortable, but she's doing a good thing, let her work. So Teresa gets back to work, all right? In between that time, while she is in this house arrest period and her people are suffering, she writes The Interior Castle, which is based on this ecstatic vision she has of the soul, I see you, of the soul uh, being like a castle that you go through with God, okay? So she did not take this sitting down. Sabbatical. Sabbatical, yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was relatively easy for her at that point in time, but man, she took the Inquisition like a champ. So, um, <laughs> she did, and she came out on the other side. Now, the interior castle. This is what I, I looked at. Most people consider this to be her um, culminative work. She's written many, many things, but this is the one that people go back to time and time again. It was prominent um, in both the spiritual, the Christian world, and in the non-Christian world, just because of its prose and its engaging manner, okay? So, I began to think of the soul as if it were a castle made of a single diamond or of a very clear crystal, 
in which there are many rooms, just as in heaven there are many mansions. So for Teresa, she gets this vision. She gets this vision, and it tracks the soul's progress. So she imagines like her and God walking into a castle together. Okay, so the castle of the day. And at this point in time, your mind should be mentally picturing what I showed you about Avila earlier. She knew castle walls. She knew Gothic castle structures. And that's the framework. You're going in through the gate. You go past the drawbridge. There's a courtyard. She's using these descriptive terms. But she talks about it like there are seven different rooms. And throughout that process of going in and learning, you are being transformed into, from a creature of sin into the bride of Christ. And you end in the heart of the castle, the heart of your very soul, with a type of spiritual marriage with the king or perfect union with God, okay? So it's always about being drawn further in, being drawn closer to the loving God that you know, all right? Um, the, what's interesting about this is that prayer and meditation were what opened the castle gate. Humility and self-knowledge functioned as your guides, okay? So she writes with this really interesting combination of um, mystical writing, practical instruction, encouragement, and humor. And it's a really engaging read. You can read it. Um, translations of it are still around with commentary. It's, it's beautiful work, but it's describing the soul in very tangible terms for people in a way that it had not been before, okay? Um, and what also is a really, great strength of hers is that she is speaking as a bride of Christ. So she's speaking from a feminine perspective with a feminine voice. Her works were initially intended just for her sisters at the convent, so she's writing to a female audience, and she's using these terms. And it's, why do I bring that up? Because it's a really, it's almost like it's a direct access point into understanding what it looks like to become the bride of Christ. Men, some of us struggle with understanding what it looks like to be a bride, because Y'all aren't a bride, right? This is a shoe-in way to understand what that's like as you get to walk Teresa's path with her and understand what it looks like to become a bride of Christ by someone who considers themselves a bride of Christ. Does that make sense? So it's not like you have to make one more leap. She's already there and she's walking with you down that path. So you're just following. And that's a really beautiful thing, okay? Um, oh, just as a fun side note, this made such a splash that there's some interesting ideas running around that Descartes based his meditations on first philosophy, on the ideas that he picked up in the interior castle. Now, I'm not a philosophy person, but that might be fun to like track down if that's your thing, all right? So, Teresa, mortal, just like the rest of us, she dies in 1582. The quote above is her last words. Oh my Lord, now is the time that we shall see each other. She dies in 1582 following an illness from traveling from convent to convent. She becomes canonized by the Catholic Church in 1622. And she becomes declared Dr. Orationis of the church in 1970, or a doctor of prayer in the Catholic Church. And she is the first woman who ever holds this title. Okay, there's only four of them now. There's, I think, 36 doctors of the Catholic Church. Four of them are women. Teresa was the first. All right, so her works have made a profound impact. They have been deemed full of piety and good teaching and all that kind of stuff. So she made a splash. Um, she's the patron saint of bodily illnesses, headaches, chess, lace makers, 
loss of parents, people in need of grace, people in religious orders, and anyone made fun of for their piety. Um, I chose to include this picture as her last one because this is considered the most accurate portrait of Teresa. It was painted by um, Juan de la Miseria, a fellow brother of the faith, and um, she hated this picture. <laughs> she actually says to the artist, God forgive you, Brother John, after making me go through what no one knows, you have turned me out ugly and bleary-eyed. Um, so from a woman who is so focused on you know, her appearances at the beginning and then kind of by the end of her life, that's the furthest thing from her mind, yet she does maintain her humor. So Teresa is really an incredible woman, an incredible person to walk through their life with. She understands what it means to be a friend to God and to pursue both the heights and the depths of prayer, and she makes it accessible for us all. So this last prayer is attributed to her, and it, I think it's a great way to close. So just keep in mind, grab your bookmarks before you go. That's literally her bookmark of her life. This is how she began her prayers every morning. This is how she ended her prayers every morning. So I have it on a bookmark for you. And this is the last prayer that we'll say together. Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ must look out on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless his people. May that be our reminder as we finish out Lent and await the light of the world. Amen.